Our gracious God, we give you thanks for this morning and this time together in your word. We pray now that you would open the scriptures to us by your Holy Spirit and that you would speak to each one, encourage us where we are weak and failing and strengthen us, O oh God, and, and, and cause us to keep walking in the places we are doing well and speak to each one, we pray, that we would have here um, love and relationships that reflect the truth of who you are in a way that would bless the city and the world around us as well. Do more than we need to ask. Speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you were here last week, you know that we kicked off a short series that we're doing on marriage in this month of July. And so what we want to do over these next few weeks is just try and capture what the scriptures say about marriage so that we might allow our own thinking about marriage to be shaped and informed by God's word. As we do that, this morning I want us to turn, if you've got a Bible, to Ephesians chapter 5. If you don't have one, there's one under your seat. It's the passage that Joe just read for us, Ephesians chapter 5. What we're doing over these few weeks is we're talking about marriage in general. We're talking about marriage and men, as we are this week, marriage and women, as we'll do next week, and marriage and sex, and that's sort of where we're going over these four weeks together. This week, we're in Ephesians chapter 5, and Ephesians 5 is sort of the classic text on Christian marriage. So if you've ever been to a wedding or if you've ever heard a Christian talk about marriage, likely you've heard this passage from Ephesians 5. It's full of all that we would want to know about Christian marriage and what marriage is all about. Ephesians 5, the passage starts, this passage on marriage starts in verse 22. So look with me at 22 to 24. I'll say just a moment on this because we'll talk about this much more next week, but there's just one thing I want to draw out from that. Look at what it says. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Just hearing those two verses, you know that there's plenty to say and plenty to understand. What does Paul mean when he calls wives to submit to their husbands? We'll consider much of that next week. For this week, here's what I want you to simply notice. Do you notice the connection that Paul makes between marriage and Jesus? Right? When Paul speaks about marriage, he makes this connection between your marriage and Jesus Christ. Again, hear it. It says, the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is its himself its savior. As the church submits to Christ... So also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So here's what that means. It means, and perhaps if you've been around church, you've heard this before, but if it's new to you, I want you to hear it. It means that your marriage is ultimately a picture and a portrait of the gospel. The gospel is just this word that Jesus used that means good news. And the good news was that Jesus had come to have a relationship with us, loved us, and gave himself up for us, died for us to bring us to relationship with him. And so this relationship between Jesus and us is the good news of the gospel. And this text is saying that your marriage is ultimately a portrait of that good news, of the relationship between Jesus and his bride, the church. And when we say church, I want you to hear that that's not brick and stone. That's not buildings all over the city. That's the people. We are the church. We are the ones whom Jesus died to come into relationship with. And so we are called his bride, his wife. And so your marriage, every single one, is a portrait 
of the gospel, of ultimate reality. That means that every husband in this text is called to play the role of Jesus. Every wife is called to play the role of the church. And in this drama called your marriage, you are enacting the truth of who Jesus is in his relationship with us. Now, there's more that we could say about that, and we'll come to that again in verse 32. But I, I want to lay this out as the first thing. That means that the point of your relationship in your marriage as husband and wife is much bigger than you having a happy marriage. The point of your marriage is much bigger than you having a fulfilling relationship. It's much bigger than trying to stay in love. It's much bigger than trying to build a good family and raise a good home. It means that your marriage is swept up into something far bigger and greater. Your marriage is supposed to display to the world the truth of who Jesus is and how he loves us and the truth of who we are and how we love Jesus. So if you've got a vision for your marriage that is to have a good and happy marriage and raise a good family and a good home and retire well together, your vision of marriage is far too small in light of what God calls your marriage to be, which is a megaphone to the world, to the watching world, of who Jesus is in relation to his church. That your marriage is a portrait and a picture and patterned after the gospel. If your marriage is built on something else, it's a much lesser and less sure foundation which is much more prone to disintegrate and crumble. What I mean is if you build your marriage on happiness, then the moment that you two are not happy with each other, then things start to fall apart. If you build your marriage on love and define love to be an emotion, then when you fall in love, you get married, and when you fall out of love, then you separate because I no longer love him that way. I just don't see him and feel him that, that way or feel for her that way. If you build your marriage on security or stability or, or good chemistry or a great sexual life, if you build your life on any of those things and your marriage on those things, when they wane and whine away and when they waste away as they will, then your marriage itself will begin to crumble and disintegrate. If you build, however, if you get the reality, this relationship I'm in with this man, with this woman, is supposed to be a reflection of who Jesus is. That's who I am as the husband. And I'm supposed to be the church. Well, then, till death do you part, makes sense. Because it's going to take that long for you to rightly reflect the truth of who God is and the truth of who you are, and you husbands to play the part of Jesus and you wives to play the part of the church. What marriage is, is this platform in which we get to act out our roles of Jesus and the church in front of a watching world, so that the watching world might rightly see in us there's something about their marriage, that the way the husband acts should point to Jesus, the way the wife acts should point to the church. Okay, we could say more about that. Today, what I want us to consider is, how then is a husband and a man going to play his part in that drama well? How's he going to play his part in that dance well? Well, Paul starts in verse 25. Here's what he says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Here's what I want you to notice. 
Paul has just finished saying that the husband is the head of the wife. Again, we'll talk through what that means more next week. But he's at least established this, this, that the husband is the head of the wife. He's the leader in this relationship. That just as Christ is the head of the church, so the husband is the head of his wife. And so since he's just now spoken to the wives saying, here's what I want you to do. Since he's the leader in this relationship, I want you to submit to him in everything. Now in verse 25, when he turns to actually finally address the husbands, you'd almost expect him to say, husbands, lead your wives. But that's not what he says. Instead, Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church. Now that he's set this relationship of head and submission, you'd almost expect him to say, husbands, lead your wives. Now go get them. And instead, he says, husbands, love your wives. It's because I think Paul anticipates that there's going to be some idiot who takes what he just said and runs with it in the wrong way, as you've seen happened in many generations, right? You you can almost anticipate that Paul knows that somebody's going to hear I'm the head in this relationship, and take that to mean something that Paul never meant it to mean. I read the account of a man this week who, when his wife would ask him to help with something, could you watch the kids, could you do the dishes, could you do this, he said in his mind he would flip a mental coin, and depending on how it landed, he would respond back yes or no, right? And by doing that, by saying no 50% of the time, or yes 50% of the time, he began to think of himself, that's what it means that I'm the head. That means that I'm in charge and I get to lead and show her that I'm the one who gets to make the decisions. It's precisely for an idiot like that that Paul says what he says, right? In fact, Paul spends, if you'll notice here, three times as much time talking to the men as he does to the women. He'll spend nine verses talking to men and three to the women so that you don't miss what he's saying. He wants to make it crystal clear. You want to know what leadership in your marriage looks like. You know what it means to lead your wife? He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church. You want to know what it means to be a leader? He says, Love your wives as Christ has loved the church. That means that to be the head of your home, to be the spiritual leader in your marriage relationship, is not to manage your wife, but rather to sacrificially love her like Jesus loved his bride. The call on every husband is to love your wife. How? Like Christ loved the church. And how did he do that? He gave himself up for her. And so to love as Christ calls you to love is this sacrificial, dying-to-self love that a husband is to have for his wife. The text is saying if you want to do well in your marriage, you husbands have to love your wives as Christ loved the church. All right, so just think about that for a second with me. How did Jesus love his bride? How did Jesus love the church? When I think of how Jesus loved the church, I I begin to think that Jesus loved his bride first, right? He loved first. He loved when the bride didn't even know him or love him. And he pursued the bride even when she was far away from him, right? When, When Adam and Eve, like we looked at last week in Genesis 2 and 3, when they run away from God, 
God comes pursuing and chasing them. He comes to the garden in Genesis 3 and says, Adam, where are you? When we ran away from God, Jesus came into the world and pursued us. And so that means that if there's distance, if there's separation, the husband, Jesus, is the one who pursued his bride. So if we, if we are going to love our wives as Christ has loved the church, that means a man is going to pursue his bride. And here's the thing that you consider about Jesus. Jesus doesn't stop pursuing us. Right? Where would we be if Jesus stopped pursuing us? He didn't just save us at the cross, but he continues to pursue us. That's why you know in your life, when you've got those seasons where you wander away, when you sin, aren't you so grateful that Christ doesn't just stand back and wait for you to come because you would never come, but comes after you and pursues you. He sends the Holy Spirit to convict you, and all of that is his pursuit, and his pursuit is never going to end until he has you to himself forever. Likewise, a wise husband who loves his wife like Christ loves the church will pursue his wife and do so not just when they're dating and then stop once the band has slipped over her finger, but will continue to pursue her. Pursue her till the end because this is how Christ loved the church. When I think about how Jesus loves his bride, I think about also the idea that he initiates this love. Right? So when there's this distance between us and Jesus... Aren't you so glad that Jesus initiated this reconciliation? He's the one that steps in, even when it wasn't his fault, to mend this broken relationship. So I think that would mean for us, if a husband is going to love his wife like Christ loves the church, that means when conflict rises, are we husbands going to pout in the corner and wait until she finally comes to her senses and grovels and comes to us? Or if we're going to love our wives like Christ has loved the church, we are going to initiate even in reconciling, even when it's not our fault. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't stand back and wait for you to come groveling to him because you never would have, but he himself took the initiative to pursue us when our relationship was strained. When I consider how Jesus loved the church, I think about the idea that he loved us when we were unlovable and unlovely. Would you think about that for a second? Did Jesus wait until we got our act together and deserved his love for him to show love to us? Every husband who waits for his wife to get her act together is missing out on how Jesus loved us. Where would we be if Jesus stood at a distance and said, when you fix yourself up, then come. And then when you deserve to be loved or when you are doing to me what deserves love, then I'll love you. But what we see from Jesus is in our sin, in the thick of it, in the midst of it, in the moment of it, Jesus loved us. Who can't love someone that is doing right by them? That's not difficult. But the gospel is the idea that Jesus loved us while we were still his enemies and while we were far away. And so if we're going to love our wives as Christ has loved the church, that means in the moment of her sin, in the midst of it, in the thick of her frailties and flaws and failures, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Not when she is well done and perfect and pleasing to you, but love her as Christ loved you. And aren't you so glad that he loved you in the midst of your sin 
while you were still an enemy and a sinner against God. When I consider the way that Jesus loved his bride, you think about the fact that he took responsibility for his bride. It wasn't his fault. Her failures was not his fault. But it was his responsibility. Did you hear that? Her failures was not his fault, but it was his responsibility. And so where would we be if Jesus stood at a distance and said, it's your fault? Whose fault is it? This is because of your fault. But instead, Jesus, though it was our fault, took responsibility for it. He owned it as though it were his own. And so if we're going to love our wives as Christ has loved the church, we're going to take responsibility even when the fault is not ours. And so we're going to be involved and engaged to make this right, even if you're not the one in the wrong. To love Christ like, you're, like he loved the church. To love your wife like Christ loved the church. When I consider how Jesus led his bride, how he loved his bride, when you read the accounts of Jesus and the stories of Jesus, you never find him sort of sitting back, waiting to be waited on hand and foot. You don't read the account in the Gospels of him setting up a throne, putting a crown on his head and a scepter in his hand, waiting to be waited on. Instead, headship, leadership for his relationship with his bride looked like what? It looked like him stooping down low, grabbing a basin of water and washing the feet of the one that he was supposed to lead. It looked like him wrapping the towel around his waist and dressing up as the servant for the one that he was in position over. He, he didn't have a crown on his head. What I read in the Gospels that was pressed down on his head was thorns for the sake of his bride. He wasn't walking around carrying a scepter. What we read is him walking, carrying a cross for the sake of his bride. Headship and leadership that Jesus shows to us is sacrificial servant love. And so when Paul says, you want to know what it's like to lead, you want to know what it means to be the head of your wife, it's to lay down your life for her and give yourself up for her and serve her. And which woman is going to stand back and go, I don't want that. Don't tell me that's... No, every woman would gladly come alongside a man who is willing to pour out his life to death for her sake, who would be a servant to her, who would use his authority not to crush her or manage her, but to love her and serve her. Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church. That means the call is to love sacrificially. That means your call is, what did he do? He gave himself up for her. You are to die to yourself for the sake of your bride. Now here's the thing. Most of us will never have that put to the ultimate test. Right? Most of us will never be put to the ultimate test of our love for our wife where we will actually have to die for her. But instead, God gives us the opportunity to die a thousand deaths every day in smaller ways. You know, I think one of the genius things of the enemy is to whisper to our ear grandiose, epic dreams of love where we're like the movie star and we're going to die for our bride. And then he gets us to ignore the thousand smaller deaths he wants us to die every day. It's like one wife who told her husband, 
Dear, I know that you're going to die for me because you said that to me many times. But while you're waiting to die, could you please help with the laundry? Right? We've got this epic idea of I would die for you and yet God gives us a thousand opportunities daily to come in second so that she would come in first. To die so she would live. To lose so she would win. And every time you do that, every time you put self to death for her sake, you get a little closer to understanding the gospel. And you get a little closer to displaying the gospel. The gospel is the good news of a righteous and perfect husband who was wronged by his wife and yet died for her sake so that she might live. Who was willing to come in last so she could come in first and lose everything so that she might gain everything. This is the call to love your wives as Christ has loved the church. To find that hundred different ways in which you can die to your desires and yourself so that you might love and serve her like Jesus has loved and served you. Now hear this. I want to encourage and applaud many of you at Seven Mile Road. I don't want the word to only wag its finger at you and your failings. I want to recognize and applaud where the Spirit of God is actually changing us. And I want to encourage you because God is, by His Holy Spirit, beginning to create a culture at the men of Seven Mile Road where we want to love and serve our wives. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit. And so where it's happening, we want to encourage it and point it out. Now we have miles to go and miles to grow. But I do want to give God thanks for the baby steps of where this is happening. I know of men in this church who, who have left work early so that they could surprise their wives and serve them so that their wife could have the day off. I know of men in this church who have regularly watched their kids at home so that their wife could go out for the night or go and hang out with their friends. I know of men who have regularly not gone out with the guys and watched the game so that they could go on a date night with their wives. I know of guys who have talked with other men to figure out what a creative date night could be. I know of men who, who you hate writing notes and it's death to yourself, but she likes it, so you write notes. Or you're cheap and you never spend a dollar, but you buy her stuff because you know she likes it. And are dying in many ways that are not natural to you or enjoyable to you, but you die in a thousand ways for her sake. I, I want to encourage that. I want that to be the culture at Seven Mile Road. I've heard from men of this church verbally praise their wives in public. I've heard men speak highly of them. I, I heard a man say that his wife was his best friend. This weekend I heard a, wife, a man describe his wife as a jewel. That ought to be the culture at Seven Mile Road. In my background, I figured that masculine men sit around with other men griping about their wives. And we don't want a culture of boys who sit around griping about their wives, looking for clever ways to escape them. We want a culture of godly men who love their wives as Christ loved the church. And that becomes the norm at Seven Mile Road Church to love and esteem and speak highly of and praise and sacrifice and, and die for her sake would be the norm at our church. Because husbands love your wives as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
Look at what he says next. He says in verse 26, 25, his husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Here's what's happening. Paul starts by saying, husbands, love your wives. And he says, as Christ has loved the church. And when he thinks about how Christ has loved the church, he almost goes off in a tangent and he begins to say, and, and here's why Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He not only gave himself up for her, it's so that, verse 26, here's why he did it, so that he might sanctify her. Or verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So here's what Paul's saying. Paul gets caught up in thinking about what Jesus is doing, the gospel, the good news. And he says, not only did Jesus die for her and give himself up for her, he did this so that he might sanctify her and cleanse her and ultimately present her to himself without spot or wrinkle or stain, that she might be full of splendor. That word is like brilliant, dazzling, without blemish or blot, holy and blameless. So here's what I want you to hear. The good news is not just that Jesus died to get you out of hell. The good news is Jesus gave himself to change you into something brilliant, to make you something that is full of splendor, I want you to hear this again. Aren't you glad that Jesus' death for you wasn't just to leave you as you were and then give you a ticket to heaven one day, but rather he died so that he could change who you are and transform you into something brilliant and breathtaking. What Paul's saying is, here's what Jesus is in the process of doing with us, with his church. He's transforming us into the most spectacular thing you have ever seen. You can't even imagine what he's going to make us. And each of us should just be in awe of that thought of Jesus at work in my life so that he's going to make something spectacular out of me when this is all done. That there's coming a day when there will finally be no more faults and frailties and failures and sin, no more insecurities, no more imperfections. I'm going to be perfect. And the way that Jesus describes that is he pictures it like a bride that is on her wedding day, just brilliant, dazzling, gorgeous, no wrinkles, no spot, no stain, just beautiful and brilliant. And, and here's what I want you to hear from that. What that means is Jesus is the kind of husband who not only gives up himself for her sake, but hear this, who devoted his life and submitted his life to making his bride all that God had intended for her for to be. That Jesus had devoted and submitted his entire life and his death to making this bride all that God had intended her to be, all that God had created her to be. So here's what that means. Husbands, if we are going to love our wives as Christ has loved the church, not only are you going to die for her sake and sacrificially love her, you're going to devote yourself to being used by God to let her be all that God made her to be. You're going to let God use you to be the means by which God gets her to be holy 
and spotless and brilliant and full of splendor and without stain and perfect. You're going to give yourself for the rest of your life to cultivate in your wife all that God had intended her to be. So here's what that means. If you husbands, we have 20-20 vision about our wife's flaws and failures. But if you are not in you excited about what Jesus is doing in her, you're missing what marriage is about. If you don't have an eye that sees what Jesus is actually doing in her and excited about being a part of that and being used by God to bring that out, you're missing what marriage is meant to be. Someone once asked Michelangelo how he made the David. And it's reported that his answer back was he looked at the stone and he chipped away everything that was not David. The idea was when he looked at this block of stone, he just saw what it could be and hammered and chiseled away until what he saw it could be became reality. And the idea is husbands... If you're going to love your wife like Christ has loved the church, you're going to be excited about and participate in the means of seeing her thrive and flourish and be all that God had created her to be. I want you to hear this has been a place in my life that I have failed miserably and that God's spirit convicts me about. In my life, I know that I've had 20-20 vision about all of my wife's failures and faults. My mouth was filled with far more critiques and comments and criticism and suggestions on how she might change than it was any compliment or encouragement for the things that God was doing in her life. No idea about her giftings or her dreams or what the Lord was doing there that I might participate in them, but rather just a perfect understanding of every place she was not doing it right. Until, even recently, the Holy Spirit began to convict me. Two things. One, would you let me be the Holy Spirit and not try to take that job? Would you trust that I am able to transform people? I've been doing it from the beginning, and I don't need you to transform her according to your vision. I've got a vision of what I'm going to make this bride be in the end. And if you'd like to participate, you can do so, but not take this on. And two, I found that my words into my wife's ears sounded much more like Satan than it did like Jesus. And what I mean by that is this. Do you know how annoying it is to have an enemy who is constantly accusing you and reminding you of your faults and your failures? Everything in me curses with swear words, the devil, because I hate how he's constantly reminding me of my faults and my failures and nagging me. And everything in me wants to silence the lying whisper of the enemy. And yet I found my forked tongue was that same way to my wife. And, and the Holy Spirit began to convict about whether I sounded more like Jesus or like her enemy to her. The idea is this that we want to participate, like Jesus loved his bride, in seeing our wives flourish and thrive under our leadership and care. We want to see them more in love with Jesus and more godly and more sweet and more saintly because of our love and leadership. I'll give you just this to think about. 
The idea would be the vision for your marriage is the result of your marriage is when it comes to its end, what state will she be in? Or I'd say it like this. Just the, the reality, if the statistics are true, the reality is this precious bride that you're sitting next to will one day be a widow. Right? The reality is we just wear out faster. We men are going to go sooner. And so the reality is there's a good chance that this dear woman that you're sitting next to will one day spend years of her life without you. When she comes to that day, when she is this, Lord willing, godly, sweet, saintly, old woman, when she's sitting in her chair reflecting or when she's standing over your grave, will she be able to say with honesty and integrity, I love God because that man loved me. And I am better because of the way that he led me and loved me. Will she be able to say with all honesty and integrity, there is no doubt that man loved me well. And if I had to do it all over again, I would do it with him in a heartbeat. You want to come to the end of your life, men, and have your wife and children be able to look over your grave and say, there is no doubt that we love God and are better because of him. I want to give you just a, a, a quote from a woman named Sarah Edwards. Perhaps you've heard of a man named Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, this well-known pastor, thinker, Puritan, just this genius, wrote volumes and sermons, and everybody who knows of Christian faith in America knows of him and quotes him. But what was more maybe remarkable than even his public ministry was his marriage to his wife. When he comes to his end and was put in the ground, his wife writes a letter to her daughter to inform her daughter of their husband and father's death. Here's what he says. She says this. Oh, my very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may all kiss the rod and lay our hands on our mouths. Even her understanding of God and his sovereignty and what he's done reflects that this man had pastored not just his church, but his wife well. That she could come to that hour of death and he had built in her such faith that she could respond like that. She goes on to say, the Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had your father for so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God and there I am and love to be. When you come to the end of your life, you want your wife standing over your grave saying, the legacy this man left for me and our children. We love the Lord dear because of his leadership and care. You want to be used by God, not just to give yourself up for her, but so that she might become all that God intends her to be. Look at how Paul begins to close this passage. 28, he says this. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So here's what's happening. Paul has talked to the husbands. He talked about Jesus' love. He got caught up in Jesus' love for us. 
And then he turns back to, again, say to the husbands, so husbands, here's what I want you to do. I want you to love your wives like you love your own body. He goes on to say, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So here's his argument. His argument is, look, nobody has ever hated their own body, but that rather we all work to protect and keep and care for our body, right? We don't, we don't speak aloud of love for our body, but we all act in ways that protect and nourish and cherish our own bodies. So if my stomach is hungry, as you can see by looking at me, I have no problem nourishing it and cherishing it, right? I don't grumble about feeding it. I do, I do whatever it tells me to do, right? If my feet are cold or my hands are cold, I have no problem covering it. If my body is in danger, my immediate response is to protect it. Because no one ever hates their flesh. We do all that we can to nourish and cherish our own body. And here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, that's exactly what Jesus does too. He protects his own body. The only difference is, he sees you as his body. See, when a man protects his own body, he's self-centered and his interest is self. When Jesus protects his body, he's so other-centered, he sees you as his body and he nourishes it and cherishes it. Did you know that that's the way Jesus thinks about you? Do you, do you get how much good news that is? Don't miss that. That is that Jesus sees you as an extension of himself and gladly cares for you and nourishes you and cherishes you. He sees you like his foot. And as quickly as he would be willing to care and nourish for his own body, so he does for you because he sees you as an extension of himself. He doesn't do it with grumbling, but with the same gladness that we feed ourselves, so glad is Jesus to care for you because he sees you as an extension of himself. And Paul says how this relates to marriages. Likewise, a husband is to love his wife as his own body. That is, my wife is to be seen as an extension of my own body. That she is an extension of me. This is why he says, he who loves his wife loves himself. Because the line between you and me has been so blurred that it no longer exists. This is why the Bible says you are one flesh. The two become one so that my wife your wife is an extension of your own body and when you love her you are loving yourself because she is yourself she is your body she is your flesh and blood and that's when you go all the way back to this is why Adam said what he did went in the garden when he saw her and said you are flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone it's like you're an extension of me and Paul brings all this to a crescendo and says, do you get now what marriage is? This is this one flesh thing where when you love her, you're loving yourself because she is your body. This is why he ends the passage by quoting verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He goes back to Genesis, and then I'll end with verse 32. He says, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Here's what he does. He lifts back Genesis 2 
And he says, do you see this union you have with Christ that you are now an extension of his body? That's what marriage has been about all along. You just didn't know it. He lifts up Genesis 2 as to say, this is why it said they will become one flesh. And though for centuries we had no idea what all that meant, though it was sort of veiled and hidden, now in light of Jesus, I'm saying to you, this mystery is about Jesus and the church. That God created marriage so that he would have language by which to describe our union with Jesus. That's why marriage exists. Your marriage exists so that God would have vocabulary to describe the kind of union you have with Jesus Christ. So that you would get, is it really that intimate? Are we really one body like a husband and wife are one flesh? This is a mystery, and I say to you that it refers to Christ and his church. Your marriage is about the gospel. That's what it's patterned after. That's what it's a portrait of. That's why the devil hates your marriage so much, because it reeks of Jesus. There are people who will never come to this church and yet your, your marriage is a proclamation of the gospel, for better or worse, to all those around you. And if you love your wife as Christ has loved the church and give yourself up for her and commit yourself to the work of sanctifying her, then you begin to tell the truth to a watching world of what Jesus is like. This is what your marriage is about. I want to say this and then I'll stop. The last thing I want you to hear is just this as we go. The gospel is a pattern and a portrait and a picture of your marriage, but it's also more than that. It's the power for this as well. It's the power for all that we've talked about. If, if you had a snail and showed that snail a picture of a horse and said, now run, how helpful would that be? That snail could look at that picture all day and all it does is go, I'm never going to be able to do that. If I told you, here's how Jesus loved the church, go likewise and do that, I'm showing a, a horse to a room full of snails. Because we're powerless. We're powerless to love as he's loved. But here's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel is more than a picture. It's the fuel. It's the power. The gospel contains within it not just a portrait of what this is to be, but the power to make it a reality. I'm not leaving you here with law. I'm not leaving you here, husbands, with, so go from here and do better and try harder. I'm leaving you here with God loves you in your failure to be the kind of husband he was. And he loves you anyway. And he cherishes you anyway. And when your chest is filled with that love, then it becomes the power to go and love that way as well. When this gospel goes from a portrait to actually in you, and you begin to experience the love of Jesus that forgives your every failure to be what he wanted you to be, then you are now in a position to be able to love as you have been loved. Because it's the power of it as well. One pastor named Ray Ortland says it perfectly, so I'll quote him and then we'll be done. He says, this is the gospel. In Romans 7, 
it says that we were all once married to the law. And so we were married to Mr. Law. And Mr. Law was a horrible husband. Mr. Law would come home at the end of the day and every day the kids were a mess and the house was a mess and dinner was burned and everything was chaotic. And Mr. Law would come in and every day he would say the same thing. Do better. Try harder. And then one day Mr. Law died. And oh, thank God he died. And then we got remarried to Mr. Grace. And when Mr. Grace would come home, the children were a mess, and the house was a mess, and dinner was burnt, and Mr. Grace would come in, and he would grab, and he would say, I love you, and I cherish you, and you are dear to me. And the gospel is the good news that we are not under the law, we're under grace. And when a man's heart is filled with the reality that God loves me just as I am in my broken and failing and sinful state, then it will become the power and fuel that that would be the temple of your home as well. Then you would become the kind of man who loves your bride in her failures and flaws just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her and sanctified her that he might present her to himself pure and full of splendor. That's our call. May God help us to that end. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we give you thanks that as we talk about this, we begin to realize we're talking about more than just how to do something, how to have a good marriage, a few steps to being a better husband. We begin to realize we're talking about ultimate things. We're talking about Jesus and his good news to us. We're talking about the reality that we were flawed and failing and broken and weak, that we have not done what you called us to do, and that we have messed up in every way, and day by day you visit our lives and find that things are in disorder in a million different ways. And yet rather than admonishing us, rebuking us, condemning us in our sin, you call us to yourself. Embrace us in your grace and love and extend mercy every day. Help us to realize the love of Christ for us, his bride, that he gave himself. He died to himself so that we might live. He lost everything so that we might gain everything. He came in last so that we might be first. And as we receive that love, help us to be that way as well. And help us to see that even now, Jesus is in heaven excited about what he is making us to be. For he sees us not just in our frailties and our flaw, but he sees us for what we will be. Spotless, splendor, without wrinkle, without blemish, holy and pure. And so I pray that you would help us to engage in the work of doing that as well for our lifetime. I pray for every man at Seven Mile Road. I pray that you would please encourage those who are humbled and humble those who are defiant and proud. For every heart that will not bow to your word, break it. For every heart that is broken by your word, rebuild it. I pray that the men of Seven Mile Road would build a culture here where loving Christ, like loving the bride like Christ loved the church would be the norm. 
I pray for every woman here that single women would look for a man like this when they seek to get married. And that married woman would seek God in prayer and trust the Holy Spirit to be able to transform their husbands to be like Christ. In every way, we are broken and need your grace and grateful that we have it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.